Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report this morning as we continue Ipspalooza. More on that later. As expected, CMS issued the final rule for the 2019 inpatient prospective payment system. We'll be reporting on Ips throughout the week. CMS has also published the proposed 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and the 2019 proposed outpatient prospective payment system. Dwayne Abbey is standing by to report this developing story. Backlash continues over the aforementioned physician fee schedule announced recently by CMS. Shannon DeConda reports on the reaction she's hearing from stakeholders. And speaking of backlash, we begin a new segment here on Monitor Monday called CMS. Are you listening? Details to follow. David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business, but we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Well, late last week, CMS released the inpatient final rule, which becomes effective on October 1st. It's 2,593 pages, so get reading. Now, I have to commend the CMS staff for their work on this rule. I know few of you actually read the rule, but if you want a taste of what the CMS staff undertakes, Read the 64 pages that start at page 487. That's the section where they evaluate the new CAR-T treatment for leukemia and lymphoma for eligibility for a new technology add-on payment. Not only do they evaluate the applicable DRG and patient volumes, but also the science behind the treatment, and I'll admit they use terminology that even I don't understand. Quote, Using a gene transfer process to modify autologous patient immune cells with a chimeric antigen receptor capable of directing immune-mediated killing. Now, what does that mean? Well, the CMS staff figured it out, and they've awarded new technology status to CAR-T therapy with an additional $186,000 paid for the treatment. But remember, by law, the payment rate is only 50% of the cost of the new treatment So every treatment means a loss to the hospital of at least $186,000. But you know what those finance people say, we may lose money on every case, but we make it up on volume. Now CMS also added inpatient transfers to hospice to those admissions that will be subject to a reduced DRG payment if their length of stay is less than the geometric mean minus one day. Now, while hospitals may not be happy about this, this is not a terribly frequent occurrence, so it should have little revenue impact. On the other hand, if they did this to patients who were admitted as inpatient and then die, that would be painful. Oh, and by the way, this hospice transfer rule applies to all hospice, be it inpatient hospice or hospice at home. In the commentary, CMS said the commenters objected to this change because, quote, such payment policies would dissuade transfers to hospice care. Now, I sure hope that that is not true and that no one would ever delay discussing hospice because of money. CMS also finalized their proposal concerning the 
inpatient admission rule. Now, it's summer. I didn't want to spend my whole weekend trying to interpret what CMS said, so I can't provide a detailed analysis. But it's clear that as of October 1st, if the inpatient admission order is not authenticated prior to discharge, the claim will not be automatically denied, nor do hospitals have to self-deny if that authentication happens after discharge. CMS noted that it was never their intent to have the QIO deny these admissions, nor have hospitals self-deny them, but unfortunately, both the QIOs and hospitals have spent the last five years thinking that if CMS set it as a condition of payment, there would be no room for leniency. Now, what about the other implications of their change of heart? I'll be spending the next two weeks trying to figure that out for my upcoming webinar. That's all for now, but stand by for a very strange story later in the broadcast. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And coming up at about five minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Shannon DeConda, David Glazer, and Dwayne Abbey, who will be reporting our lead story. This is Monday. It's August the 6th, and it's the third week of Epsilusa. It's a summer school to learn all about the inpatient prospective payment system. It's final now. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by AHEMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Have you heard? It's happening again. The 2019 ICD-10 code updates are here. AHEMA has more than 20 coding experts working to review all code updates in their entirety. They are creating webinar training to ensure you and your staff are prepared for success. In-depth, on-demand training webinars are available for ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, and specialties, including inpatient physical rehab, long-term care, physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and auditors. Purchase as an individual or for your entire organization at ahema.org slash code updates. We're back, and a program note, you can register now to attend a very important webcast on changes CMS is proposing to the EM services. Register now to attend this very important webcast. It features Shannon DeCon. It's coming your way on Thursday, August the 23rd. And speaking of webcasts, now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education when you subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast Description Program. You and your team and other departments in your team will have the latest information that will help them remain compliant while avoiding take-backs and audits. That is the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast Description Program. It's available now. Let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who returns to the broadcast with a report on some very risky business. David? Good morning, Monsieur Buck. So here is an interesting question. Can you appeal from a voluntary repayment? Now, at first, the idea might sound crazy. You've just returned a bunch of money voluntarily. Why would you do that and then appeal? But there can be reasons you may wish to do so. For example, I just had a client refund hundreds of thousands of dollars because of a reassignment violation. Their counsel told them that's what they needed to do. Then they had talked to me about a different issue. This came up and they realized that the original refund wasn't necessary. They got advice from lawyers who didn't have a sufficient understanding of the Medicare rules. And in particularly the fact that reassignment isn't an overpayment. Or let's say you've got some sort of incident to you. You've been uh, dealing with chemo and people have a infection and you've refunded and you now realize, hey, wait, that's part of the course of treatment. You don't need to do it. Can you seek the return of money you've voluntarily refunded? 
The answer is yes. When the 60-day rule first came out in the Federal Register on February 12, 2016, there's preamble language. And you'll remember preamble language is the language the government puts in before a rule explaining what they're thinking. So if you look at page 7668, it specifically addresses this question. And it says, quote, revised initial determinations, which trigger appeal rights under existing rules, are issued when specific claims are adjusted. To the extent that the return of any self-identified payment results in a revised initial determination of a specific claim or claims, a person would be afforded the rights, appeal rights, that currently exist. So that's what the Federal Register says. And what it means is that if you're refunding money on a particular claim, you can still ask for an appeal to determine whether the refund was necessary. Now, unfortunately, there's one common situation that isn't covered by that Federal Register language. If you generate a refund off of a statistical sample or an estimate, you're generally not submitting a list of particular claims. And the language in the Federal Register will make it possible for the contractor to argue that you're not permitted to appeal from a refund that's generated by such a sample. I know that the MAC in Florida takes this position, stating you can appeal from a refund only when you've identified the, cl identified the claims that tie to the refund. So to avoid this problem, I can think of two possible solutions. One possibility is that when you're doing a refund on a statistical sample, include a list of all of the claims in the original universe, and then state that you're returning a portion of that each claim and that that's what's being adjusted. Now, if you haven't done that, I guess your next best position is to argue that since providers have a right of appeal off of a statistically generated overpayment, the same appeal right has to attach to a voluntary disclosure. Obviously, that's not as good a place to be in, and so if you've got a chance to avoid getting there, I'd try to do so. Now, I want to emphasize that a refund is required under the 60-day rule only when you know you have an overpayment. If you've got cogent arguments that the claims were properly paid, I generally recommend that you don't refund in the first place. But if for whatever reason you prefer to be cautious, the option to refund an appeal might be, well, I guess I'd have to say it would be appealing. So Phil Collins and really the Supremes, and since I'm sitting in Detroit right now, I guess I should go with the Supremes, say that love don't come easy, but it's a game of give and take. Giving money back and then trying to take it may not be easy, but I confess that I love doing it. And a closing note, in addition to those great webinar subscriptions Chuck is mentioning, my firm also does some free webinars, and the topic this month is frequently asked help law questions. It tends to be popular, and if you want to know about it, shoot me a quick email. So, Chuck, I'm going to go uh, try to hurry love now, look for Diana Ross, and I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm at Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Reaction to the proposed 2019 physician fee schedule has been fast and furious. Here now with more on the reaction to the proposing changes tucked into the proposed rule is Shannon DeConda. Good morning, Shannon. What are you hearing? You know, we're hearing a lot of buzz all over the industry on every level. And I don't think there can be enough conversations or enough articles or enough viewpoints posted on the CMS E&M changes. 
So first to vote, for those who may not know the changes, let me give you a 30,000 foot overview. CMS is proposing to, quote, collapse the ENM levels 99202 through 99205 and 99212 through 99215 into a single reimbursement rate. Why would they do that? Because they say they are eliminating administrative burdens for the provider during the office encounter by relaxing the documentation requirements. In this model, they would only have to justify the work of a level two encounter, which is essentially one HPI and one organ system and a straightforward medical decision making, which pretty much means anything goes when it comes to documentation. So how will this impact healthcare? Well, first of all, think about the patient. If you go to 95 and 97 documentation guidelines and you go to the beginning, it starts with a thought-provoking question of what is documentation and why is it important? The first two bullets are planning patient care and continuity of patient care. How will one HPI, one organ system, and a straightforward MDM give what a provider needs for a patient on an ongoing basis? There are many providers who do elaborate documentation, but we all know those providers who don't, and those are the ones that we have guidelines for. Furthermore, the reimbursement model is paying the same regardless of the complexity of the patient. So if I have a very complex patient, but I also have a splinter in the finger, they're both being paid the same thing. And for those providers who bill higher levels of service, they could experience almost a $70 decrease in reimbursement based on the proposed rules. We think of also the physician shortage that we're experiencing. Currently, right now, it's stated that we're about $120,000, 120,000 physicians short. According to the CDC, by 2030, one in five of us will be 65. We have an older living population. We're already in a desperate need for physicians, and now we're going to pay everybody the same for everything they're treating regardless. Well, why would I want to spend years of my life in medical school and hundreds of thousands of dollars on debt to get a subspecialty degree that I'll never be able to pay back because the reimbursement model keeps changing and reducing? Or will this continue to increase our provider shortage? Not, with the, not to also withstand how this might impact the coder and the auditor. CMS states currently the ENM codes are about half of the codes that are billed, and of that half, about half of those are the office encounters that will be impacted. The OIG stated in 2012 coding trends for CMS that the ENM services have been vulnerable to fraud and abuse, and this has led to thousands of jobs for auditors and coders, not only on the physician side of business, but also on the carrier side. So consider this. If it no longer matters what a provider documents in the chart for compliance, and it no longer matters what a provider needs to document in a chart for revenue consideration, then why will there be the need for as many coders and auditors as we have now? Yes, coders and auditors will still be needed for all of the other services, but our industry will certainly see a job shortage. These guidelines take us from one extreme to the other. Should there be a change? Well, quite frankly, it's controversial, but I don't think so. I think we need clarity. When you look at ENM guidelines and medical necessity and you pair them up, they work well together. But these proposed changes essentially eliminate everything. It's like taking a 16-year-old kid who's had a 10 o'clock curfew and say, well, you just come home when you think it's responsible. So please submit your comments. They asked for them. Let's give them to them. You have till September 11th to post your comments. Need to know how to submit? It's on the bottom of both of the articles that I've submitted for 
monitor and are published. And I'm sorry I went over, Chuck, but with that, I give it back to you. Thanks, Shannon, very much. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder and the president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, NamUs, as we know them to be. In the program, note, be sure to register to attend Shannon's excellent webcast. It's on the proposed m changes coming your way August 23rd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. We have a new segment that we're introducing today on Monitor Money. It's called CMS, Are You Listening? Physicians and other stakeholders have responded in unprecedented numbers to the CMS proposed E&M code changes at this federal government website, www.regulations.gov. So, to help give a human voice to those comments, we've asked our own Clark Anthony to read a selection of actual responses from physicians expressing their feelings about the proposed E&M changes. Here we go. Under the CMS proposal, as you know, Medicare would pay physicians certain amounts regardless of the patient's condition or the complexity of the services provided. Here's how one responded. To equate a simple blood pressure check for one patient with the evaluation and management of another patient with COPD, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, vascular disease, dementia, and the slew of other problems a primary care doctor must address in one visit is ludicrous. Another physician cut to the chase with this comment. These cuts are disturbing, and you've made doctoring into a joke. We as physicians sacrifice so much of our lives and time to do our work, and now we're being disrespected for doing so. Keep going down this road by cutting physician pay, and nobody will go to medical school. In this response, a physician asked one question that's certainly beyond the minds of many other physicians. Why is cost-saving always at the expense of physicians, without whom there would be no income for anyone? How about cost-cutting by eliminating some administrator's salaries? Hmm. Not pulling any punches, one physician flatly told CMS that this proposal was not good for health care. This will kill medicine. The proposed rule will reward patient mills that see patients like cattle. I will be forced to stop accepting Medicare if these changes go through because I will not be a patient mill. Last but not least, a response from a physician in rural North Carolina. What an absolute disgrace. So as an independent primary care physician in rural North Carolina, the visits from my elderly patients that literally cover 11 different problems will earn me the same as a simple bronchitis. If this goes through, I will not be able to see Medicare patients. Nicely done, boys. Get out of the way and let the real doctors in the trenches fix this crap. (laughs) Thanks, Clark Anthony and CMS. Hope you're listening. Our lead story this morning is about two important proposals published by CMS recently, the proposed Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and the proposed Outpatient Prospective Payment System. For more on these proposals, especially the impact on provider-based clinics, here is Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, Dwayne. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Yeah, we have two federal registers uh, proposed. Everybody, please note, they are proposed federal registers. There's the uh, Medicare uh, Physician Fee Schedule Federal Register and then the uh, OPPS Federal Register. Together, they're well over a 1,000 pages long, so there's a lot of things in there. And uh, you'll want to kind of drill down into those areas that are of greatest interest to you, but I would urge you all to read, study, analyze, comment, please, comment. 
Now, today I'm going to drill down into provider-based clinics, which would not seem to be a big topic. Now, again, uh, terminology here becomes a real mess. But just keep in mind that we have some uh, uh, accepted clinics. Those are ones that are generally created uh, before the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015. Uh, and then we have the uh, accepted uh, uh, clinics versus the non-accepted, which are the new off-campus clinics. Now, the uh, new off-campus clinics are to be paid under the physician fee schedule, but CMS has made a real mess out of this as well. So what we need is what's called uh, 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 an adjustment factor. In other words, when it comes to paying for the facility component, what percentage of the APC payment will be made? And the number that CMS uh, has indicated in the uh, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule Federal Register uh, is 40%. Now, we could talk a long time about where the 40% comes from, whether it's statistically valid, et cetera. We won't do that today. But uh, basically what this means is that uh, for uh, non-accepted clinics, that uh, you're going to get the uh, reduced physician payment plus 40% of the APC payment, whereas a, an accepted uh, provider-based clinic will get the reduced uh, Medicare physician fee schedule plus the full APC payment. All right, now let's switch gears. Let's go over to the uh, outpatient perspective payment system federal register. There are two things that I'm going to point out here. Item number one, it appears that CMS is finally ready to go with these clinical families. There are 19 of them. They've been in previous federal registers, so they're not new in that sense. The idea is that if you are an accepted off-campus clinic and you start providing this, quote, new service line, then the new service line will receive reduced payment. Now, as you can imagine, this creates some real problems in terms of, well, one is something new, one is it not, uh, and they're going to use a base period of November 1 through uh, November uh, 1 of 2015. Uh, I don't know exactly how they're going to implement this. I don't know how you're going to have to bill for this, etc., but we'll simply stand by. Now, the last thing that I'll comment to is receiving some national attention. And this has to do with the fact that CMS is proposing that all off-campus clinics, both accepted and non-accepted, uh, for the G0463 be paid the reduced amount. Now, it doesn't take very long to do the arithmetic. $116 is the... Uh, uh, APC payment, if you use the 40% uh, relatively uh, adjustment factor, that pulls it down to $46. 
and that would mean a $70 loss per G043 visit. Now, I'm going to let you soak that one in, everybody, because this is major. Uh, it will affect tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and we'll have to see where this goes. Now, we've just scratched the surface. Uh, this is a particularly active year. I would encourage you all to look at the Federal Register. I know it's hard to read, uh, but uh, nonetheless, please take a look at it. All right, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dwayne, very much. That was author, educator, consultant, Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants, and he's a Rack Monitor contributor. You can read his article on those changes in the Rack Monitor E-News. You know, this is the time of year when CMS is posting new regulations for fiscal year 2019, and we want to acknowledge the outstanding reporting of this come from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who continues to monitor and report on these significant changes. So once again, we look to Dr. Hirsch, who files this very unusual story this morning. As promised, here's the bizarre story for today. On the Rack Relief User Group, a physician advisor from the Midwest, Midwest Hospital reported that representatives from, from Meridian Medicare are calling the emergency department and asking to speak to the ED doctors to find out why their Medicare Advantage patient is in the ED, what they're planning to do for the patient, and what the, the um, um, treatment plan is. The insurance company representative states they just want a, quote, sneak peek at the patient. A sneak peek? I've never heard of such a thing. Now, my first thought was that I was right about our phones knowing everything we do and say, and that maybe Meridian has spyware on the phones of their enrollees so they get an automatic notification if any of them go within 100 yards of a hospital. But Meridian isn't that devious yet. It turns out that any time a Meridian patient registers at the hospital, the clerk faxes the, the face sheet to Meridian to initiate the notification process. And actually, that's not a bad idea. Theoretically, the hospital should never have a claim denied for lack of notification. But what about the call? Well, first part of me thought, you know, this is actually a pretty good idea. If the Medicare Advantage plan knows their patient is in the ED, perhaps they can help avoid an admission by approving transfer to a SNF or arranging immediate home care services because the patients often don't need hospitalization, but that's the only way to get those services arranged. But then I thought, are they kidding? Do they think that ED doctors are sitting around waiting for calls from insurance companies? Have they ever been in an ED? Unless they're planning to call the ED after 2 a.m. and before 6 a.m. when things are occasionally a little quieter and the chances of that happening are zero, there's no way the ED doctor is going to have time to take those calls nor the desire to do it. What if the patient came to the ED for a laceration that needs some stitches? The ED doctor has to talk to an insurance person for that? If they want to keep abreast of their patients, provide a 24-hour staffed phone line and let the hospital call them when they're needed. Otherwise, give it up, Meridian. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. And be sure to register to attend his very important webcast on the 2019 IPS final rule. This timely webcast is coming your way Thursday, August 16th. We're continuing to celebrate IPS Palooza. It's the summer camp where you can learn all about the IPPS. David, uh, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. Are you ready, David? I sure am. So. Actually, Shannon, one question for you. So CMS says that this proposal, and, and I want to emphasize, I think we've all said it, but this is only a proposal. 
Um, but the proposal is revenue neutral. You know, if you were getting paid a two, you'll get paid more than you used to. So, yeah, you get less for a five. But on the whole, it's revenue neutral. We're just going to kind of squish it all in. How would you respond to that? My response is it really depends upon the type of practice. So, for example, when you look at a rheumatology practice, who 85% of their new patients should be level fours and level fives, they will face significant reimbursement hits for this type of patient scenario. If you have a practice that sees lower level codes, then yes, it could have a positive effect. But the problem is, is I think when they, my personal opinion, when they say budget neutral, overall maybe it'll be neutral, but to individual clinics, they will certainly see a lot of reimbursement negatives potentially from this change. And are inpatient codes affected by this change and level one office visits? Are either of those affected? Currently, it is only the office-based codes. And interestingly enough, if you watch the CMS replay of their roundtable they had, they referred to the level one code as a nursing code only. Well, we all referred to 99211 as a nursing code, but I'd never heard of 99201 referred to as a nursing code. However, they seem to imply that that is the case with both level ones, and therefore the only codes affected in the office are the twos through the fives. Again, that will not impact the ED or the uh, inpatient codes at this time. Thanks, Shannon. Chuck, I think that's about all we have time for. I will turn it back to you. Thanks, Edward, very much. And thank you, Shannon DeConda. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dwayne Abbey, Clark Anthony, Shannon DeConda, whom you just heard, David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. I also want to thank Nancy Beckley for anchoring last Monday's broadcast while I was taking a couple of days off. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And again, thank you for listening. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>